Hey, everybody. This is the Washington State Indivisible podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, Congressman Joe Kennedy III, our associate producer, Charlotte Gittleman, sat down with the Massachusetts representative to discuss his bid for Senate in 2020. Also on this, our final show of the year, some thoughts on impeachment, on where we've been, and on what lies ahead. That is all coming up, so stay with us. So you have heard her name in the credits of the show each week, but now you are going to get to hear her. Our wonderful associate producer, Charlotte Gittleman, is a student at LaSalle College in Massachusetts, where she hosts a program on the school's radio station, WLAS. And a few weeks back, she had the chance to sit down with Democratic Congressman Joe Kennedy III for a talk about his 2020 Senate bid. I'm extremely pleased to present their conversation in its entirety. With me, I have Congressman from Massachusetts, 4th Congressional District, Joe Kennedy. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. So you are running for Senate. I am. Against Ed Markey. Yeah. Yes. Uh, a couple other people, too. So happy to have you. You've been in office for four terms now. I'm in my fourth term. Yes. You're in your fourth term. Yep. And you clearly have a family legacy, but I don't want to talk about that because, <laughs> because you're your own person. You can do plenty of other stuff and you have done plenty of other amazing things. So I want to talk about the issues that are important to you and what you're planning on doing. Thank you. So on September 20th was the global climate strike with 4 million people striking worldwide and at least 9,000 were in Boston, mm-hmm. right? Clearly, the demand for action on climate change is huge. So what are you planning to do to tackle the issue? Watching uh, people pour out around the world on that day was one of the more inspiring days I think many of us have seen in an awfully long time. And without question, our our government needs to respond. It needs to answer the challenge. For me, that mm-hmm. begins with the Green New Deal and yeah. executing on the framework laid out in, in in that package that is an aggressive attempt to uh, decarbonize our economy, but is a, also an economic mobilization recognizing that if we're going to achieve the goals of the Green New Deal, if we're actually going to do what it takes to get uh, carbon out of our atmosphere, we're going to have to restructure and reconfigure our, our economy to do so. Mm-hmm. And we have an opportunity to empower generations of uh, Americans that have been left out, cut out, left behind in this current economic structure to actually tackle those jobs, create that wealth, employ, uh, empower their families to actually help meet this need. So I think it's an extremely exciting opportunity that we've got. We have to execute on it and we need to pass it. Yeah, you need to get it from the top down, you know, through families. And a lot of what I've seen has been very, you know, what do we do now? Mm -hmm. But we need to think about how is it going to be sustainable? We, yes. So the short answer is we need to, you need to do both, right? If you believe that there is an urgency of now, mm-hmm. we need to be executing on whatever we can get now. But you can't lose sight of the fact that whatever we can get now isn't going to be enough to stave off the environmental disaster and economic disaster mm-hmm. that climate change is going to bring us if we don't actually do what we as a nation, as a society, as a planet need to do. And that's where I think, yes, policymakers do have to be focused on what is necessary today. Yes. But setting inside or setting in place that framework for how do you actually restructure and reconfigure the economy to ensure that we get to where we need to go because we cannot let the old excuses of saying look it's just not feasible it's just not plausible it's just not possible we better figure out how to make it possible otherwise an entire younger generation of americans now and by the way our kids our grandkids are going to be left with a planet that 
isn't going to be the same as the one that we know. Yeah, it's about stopping the end of all of us. You know, <laughs> we got to make sure that there's something here for us to engage with in yeah. the future. Otherwise, money doesn't matter. No. All right. So on reproductive health, yeah. you've got a lot going on with that. Um, so what are your plans for helping protect reproductive freedoms nationwide. Specifically, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on including transgender men and women in that, because it's not just about women's reproductive health. Everyone has bodies. Everybody needs health care and Charlie, help with that. You're exactly right. So look, I think the, the best way to frame that at the moment is around uh, reproductive justice, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that is obviously incorporates the, the baseline of where this debate, I think, has been for a long time, which is protecting... Roe v. Wade and the entire and the access to reproductive rights and reproductive mm -hmm. healthcare that that stem from it, but that's necessary. It's not sufficient. We need an entire uh, again mobilization and protective force around not just that decision, but around the equity that uh, Roe v. Wade has helped usher in, but mm -hmm. that we are still so far away from actually achieving. Yes, and so it's. From my perspective, it's being a champion for uh, for Roe, um, recognizing that at this moment we have an obligation in states like Massachusetts to push forward and codify it. And we've got the Roe Act here in Massachusetts that, that tries to do that at the state level. Mm -hmm. But also recognizing that when it comes to reproductive justice, just as you said, men play a part in that too. Yeah. And LGBT community plays a part in that too. Transgender community plays a part in that too. That they need to be at the table. And by the way, if we... It's not just enough to vote the right way on these issues. You got to go out, and if our system is going to tilt the playing field towards uh, a conservative viewpoint that that has been looking to overturn Roe for now generations, mm -hmm. because of a calcified structure and because of unprecedented obstruction in our political system that we've seen from Mitch McConnell, who has now stacked the court system and stacked the Supreme Court by not confirming Merrick Garland, then by the way, you need to end the filibuster. You need to end the Electoral College. Four of the five conservative justices have been appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. And so I don't think you can separate reproductive justice from the Electoral College, yeah. from Supreme Court term limits, from the filibuster. Because if we're actually going to make good on that promise, you need the structural form to enable it to happen. I agree. Very much so. I think the Electoral College is doing us a hindrance more than it's a help and kind of always has. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of going off of that, uh, how do you plan to break the Senate gridlock if Democrats can't take back the majority in the Senate? A couple of ways. One, we have this opportunity at this moment uh, as a country to try to make the case, not just to every other uh, citizen across our nation, but to the rest of the world about the type of country we want to be, the type of yes. country we believe we can be. And by the way, I was in nearly 20 different states uh, in the last uh, election cycle, uh, mm -hmm. 2018, from West Virginia to South Carolina to Texas, uh, Arizona, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Maine, New Hampshire, uh, Indiana, and a whole bunch of places in between. You know what you hear when you're in some places that conservative places across the country that are sometimes most Democrats don't go? You hear an awful lot of folks say that they are part of a, or in a country where their political system doesn't see them, hear them, pay attention to them, take their concerns uh, into account, overlooks them, takes advantage of them, takes them for granted an awful lot of the same manifestations of concern that I hear today from a community in Massachusetts that feels overlooked, cut out, marginalized structurally 
brought out of the system intentionally and on purpose. But that's actually a very similar message from the right and the left. And the only way that I know how to at least start that conversation back is you show up. You show up again and again and again. You hear people out. You meet them where they are. You listen. You tell them that you're going to take their concerns to Washington. And you know what? You do. And you fight for it every single day. And you go back and you let them know that you fought for it, even if you didn't win. But slowly and over time and slowly but surely, you try to earn their trust and their respect and support and hopefully, yes, their vote. And if you can't make good on the promises that you're fighting for, you then do what you can to actually change the structures that prohibit that from taking place. Campaign finance reform, a people's pledge, get the dirty money out of politics, the filibuster, uh, the electoral college, Supreme Court term limits, as we talked about. But it's about addressing that structural reform. And if you can't do that, then, by the way, you go out to those places and you campaign for people who will. And I was honored to play a part in helping flip the house for the first time in uh, nearly 10 years. Mm -hmm. I spent my first three terms in office under Republican controlled House of Representatives. And you know what? It's an awful lot better there being in the majority. But we need to do the same thing in the Senate. And if I'm fortunate enough to serve in the Senate, that's exactly what I would hope to do. That's great. Yeah. Um, as a student, yeah. I'd like to know, what do you plan to do about student debt burden? <laughs> Charlotte, this is a challenge unlike any other generation has, uh, has been confronted with. We've got nearly $1.6 trillion in student loans, and that in and of itself is a big number. But that almost dismisses the impact that so many students and families are feeling where they have to cut a check every month, 200 300 $400, $500 a month, sometimes higher back out of their hard-earned money to pay for an education that our government said, hey, this is what you need to do in order to be able to enter the middle class. Well, for generations before ours, the middle class pathway to middle class was actually paid for by our government. It was a high school diploma. Yeah. And our economy has shifted. Our education system has shifted. But our government has then shifted to say, look, in order for you to afford access to the middle class, you have to pay for it. And the implication of that now shifts that burden to our shoulders and by the way, when you're a recent graduate from school, when you end up seeing the fact that, at least recently, the major population centers are going to be the areas that are driving needs for, for where job growth is most prevalent, but it means you've got to be able to afford an apartment in Boston with yeah. rent that is astronomical. And employers that are shifting burdens of um, the, the relationships between an employer and employee onto the employee. So healthcare and healthcare benefits, right? Contributions to 401k or retirement. The fact is that a middle-class job no longer provides a middle-class life, and that is coming down even more strongly on the shoulders of a younger generation who has to cut that check to student loans. And so the plan that I've endorsed is uh, one, Senator Warren's the, the lead in the Senate. Uh, Cedric Richmond is the lead in the House. But it would eradicate nearly 95% of all student loans and put in, in for, for the top wage earners that they would be uh, able to pay it back. Folks that can't pay it back would. But for everybody else where this becomes a massive economic hindrance, not just today, but the reason why you can't accumulate any sort of wealth, afford that down payment on a house, help you make an investment in yourself in your future, build some sort of safety net and nest egg maybe to pass on to your children, student loans comes right back to the heart of that. And that's why I think this is such an urgent economic need that if we don't address, it's going to have a massive ripple effect literally for generations to come. What do you think about, you know, you talked about with high school diploma being the standard mm -hmm. before, it seems like the standard now is an associate's degree, mm -hmm. if not, you know, a full four-year education. Mm -hmm. um, 
does that actually have an impact on the value we place on a college education? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people are going another way and looking at other industries that they can do instead of spending that much money only to spend the rest of their lives paying mm-hmm. that off. So I think it's a great question and a great point. I look at this from kind of two, two big buckets, right? One is making it clear that there are alternative pathways to get a middle-class job that affords a middle-class life. I gave this response to the State of the Union uh, address a couple of years ago down at Diamond uh, Vocational School in Fall River, Massachusetts. Median household income in Fall River is about $34,000, $40,000 a year, household. When I walked through their plumbing shop uh, and I asked their, their top students at this uh, vocational school are going anywhere they want in the country. And I said, look, where's just a good solid student go? What's their pathway? And the guy who ran that shop said, you come here, you graduate when you're 18, you join an apprenticeship, you enter an apprenticeship, you work days, you take your classes nights, two, two and a half years from now, you'll sit for the state board and you'll pass, you'll be a plumber. And I said, okay, so what's that mean? He said, but depending on where you are in the state, $75,000 a year. There is a school that has doubled the household income by the time you are roughly 20 or 21 years old with essentially no debt. There are more CEOs in the state than plumbers. We, we have the tools to do this. And yet there are now thousands of kids across our state trying to get into our Vogue Tech schools and not enough slots for them. There are alternative pathways where if you believe that the, the entire objective of a job isn't to contribute to some number of GDP that most people don't know and can't feel and isn't real, but it's to meet the economic burden to be able to raise a family. It's about keeping a roof over your head, food on your plate, and your kid in school. If a job can't do that, then we got to rethink the nature of a job. And if there's skills that are necessary in order to acquire a job that can do that, then let's make sure we get access to those skills. There are, there are opportunities to do this right now, good, high quality jobs. And we're not making the investment to make that accessible for nearly as many students as want it. So that's got to be a big piece to this. Yeah. All right. So we're talking about education and I go to a big college or not huge, but Mm -hmm. In the last little bit we have here, I'd like to hear about your opinions on gun violence. Mm -hmm. Really, if you can do a quick summary of your uh, stance Mm -hmm. on how we can help that, because as a college student, that is a fear I have now. Absolutely. And it's, this has been one of the um, most difficult um, and emotional problems to tackle, I think, over the course of my last seven years in Congress, because it's inexcusable. And to hear from some of our colleagues that this is essentially the price of freedom that we have to live with because essentially the argument that if you want to go to school, you have to go to college, go to high school, you have to wrestle with the fact that somebody else might bring a, bring a gun to your school or, by the way, to a movie theater or a concert. And it just doesn't have to be that way. We can do simple things like ending the gun show loophole, the private sale loophole, putting on red flag laws actually implementing a successful assault weapons ban and drastically reduce the likelihood of mass shootings. Now, there's no, there's no one single policy reform that is going to ensure that another incident doesn't happen again. But we can look around at other countries where, that have implemented various policy reforms after these mass shootings, and we can see that they have, in fact, been successful. Yeah. And there's no reason why this country can't do it too. This is purely a reflection of a calcified political structure and a lack of political will. And 
it's shameful. It's going to be one of the great stains on this Congress. And I was honored to be able to play a part in voting for a series of reforms that were the first bills that had passed Congress to tackle uh, issues on gun violence in literally a, over a decade. The Senate obviously hasn't brought it up. We need to change the Senate. Yeah. All right. To lighten it up a little yeah. bit from that, last last question, very light. What team would win in a bench-clearing brawl <laughs> between the Pittsburgh Penguins, my team, and the Boston Bruins? Oh, Charlotte, come on. <laughs> There's no, like, not even close on this one. Um, <clears throat> my basic rule of thumb is that a Boston sports team will win almost anything we ever do. The only big challenge would be if we happen to play each other in whatever sport that would be. But otherwise, and I think recent history has proved this out, Boston is without question the home of champions and home of the greatest collection of sports teams ever concepted by, invented by the human mind. I got to say, though, that's without back-to-back Stanley Cup championship. You know, we got robbed last year. (laughs) It was actually an act of generosity on the behalf of uh, of New England fans because there's only so many championships one state can win in a year. (laughs) And so, you know, when you actually... When you win as much as we do, every now and again, you got to let somebody else win. So that's you're true. All right. Thank you so much for <laughs> sitting down with me today. Um, Thank you, Charlotte. This I was incredible. It. And Grateful. it was so nice to meet you. Good luck. Thank you so much. Take care. So, this will be the final show of the year. And, uh, <laughs> Well, what a year it was. We are recording on Thursday, December 19th, the day after the House voted to impeach Donald Trump. And if you are like me, you have probably got about 20 different thoughts and emotions stacked on top of each other today. I imagine that a good number of you listening attended an impeachment rally on Tuesday night. There were events in over 600 cities and communities all across the country with about 200,000 people taking part. I was honored to emcee the rally in Seattle, which drew about 3,000 people. And the mood was, I think, resolute is the right word. People were angry, but they were intent on what needed to be done. And they were there to show our members of Congress that we would have their backs when they upheld their constitutional duty and voted to impeach. And I'm guessing that's similar to what you saw wherever you were. And today, like I say, it's hard to articulate. It's certainly not a joyful occasion, but it, it feels like a measure of justice has been done. For Donald Trump, this marks the first time in his presidency and and possibly his life that he has been held to account for his actions. And we know that we all played a big part in that. I I keep flashing back to election night in 2016 and just the the shock of that night and knowing in our gut that what was coming next was going to be bad. We didn't know then just how bad. But then I think about my first encounter with Indivisible and taking part in a visit to Congressman Dave Reichert's office. Uh, Maybe you heard he has since retired. And then just all the things that have come after, how many extraordinary people that I've gotten to know through Indivisible since then, how we've fought together and celebrated victories together and consoled each other through losses. And we've watched children be born and children grow. We have become a family. I don't know if you guys caught Ezra Levin 
on the Rachel Maddow show on Monday. I figure a lot of you were watching because I know how many of your personal origin stories begin with hearing about the Indivisible Guide on Maddow. But I was really struck by something that Ezra said. He said, quote, the reason why Indivisible has had the impact that it has had, the reason why it's still going three years on, is that people got together to fight the Trump agenda, but they stay together because they built these communities of folks who are supporting each other and empowering each other to influence this state of national politics. And that's what we did, right? We built a community and we fought side by side across the country to flip the house. And then when it was time to hold Trump accountable, we worked together to tell our representatives that that was what we expected of them and they did it. And that's kind of why I don't worry about the politics of this. I mean, sure, yes, it is politically risky for the Democrats to impeach. But setting aside that it was the right thing to do, not impeaching would have been just as risky because the grassroots is a force that is now bonded together over these last three years. And we're going to be out there one way or another. And, you know, something else that I want to make note of. Although she did not come out and say it, the fact that Nancy Pelosi indicated that she may not be sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate until Mitch McConnell can commit to a fair trial, I'm going to be honest, that made me feel something that was totally unambiguous. That made me feel proud. I was proud that she was willing to stand up and play hardball against the Republicans. That is the kind of accountability that made all the work we did in 2018 absolutely worth it. So we don't know what's going to come out of all this right now. There is a lot of reading of the tea leaves right now, a lot of prognostication about how this might impact the 2020 election, about how this vote will affect Democrats in purple or red districts. And I don't know, and I don't really like to speculate, but we do know that on December 18th, 2019, the Constitution was upheld. And we also know that in 2020, we are going to be out defending the seat of every Democrat who voted to impeach. And we are going to be working to get rid of every Republican and a couple Democrats who didn't. We are also going to be doing everything in our power to take back the Senate and, of course, to take back the White House. And we are going to make sure that we keep our Democratic majorities in both chambers of the legislature here at home and that every Democrat in state government from Jay Inslee on down gets elected or reelected. As I have mentioned, this show is going to be devoted almost exclusively to supporting those efforts in 2020. So, you know, watch this space and please keep the programming thoughts and suggestions coming. It is no spoiler that the coming year is going to be challenging. It is going to take everything we've got. I personally plan on leaving it all in the field, and I trust that you feel the same way. So I do hope that you and yours have a wonderful holiday. Here's to quality time with the people who matter most. Here's to rejuvenating our spirits. And here's to being ready in 2020 to take our country back. And that is it for this week's show. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Our associate producer is the wonderful Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to Charlotte for an excellent interview with Joe Kennedy III. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. Have a wonderful holiday and new year. And we'll talk to you in 2020. Bye.